Good morning. I want to welcome you to Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. As we continue our study of the prophecy of Daniel, last week at the beginning of chapter 9, we studied his prayer for God to restore and renew his mercy to all God's people, for God to act and, and bless them and restore them and act now, Daniel prayed. Today, we get to hear how the Lord answered that prayer. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall, its, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end that there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would help us to come and understand these strange words. Give us a vision for living for You in these days. And give us a hope in Your Word and Your promises. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I read a story about a woman who was converted to believe in Jesus late in life. And like many new believers, this woman was eager to share her faith and she wanted to encourage others to read the Bible. Her reading of her own scriptures spilled over to wanting to encourage everyone around her to read the Bible too. So she decided that whenever she gave gifts to people, that she would have a Bible verse inserted into that gift. And so what she did is she took some, uh, some Bible passages and cut out hundreds and hundreds of little verses, individual verses on the, of the Bible, and she put them all in a box. And whenever she had to give a gift to someone, she would pull out one of these little scraps of paper with a verse on it and put it in the box or put it in the bag and then give it to the one whom she wanted to bless. And not only that, but this dear soul insisted that whenever the package was opened, the verse needed to be read aloud. Didn't matter the context, didn't matter the verse. You can imagine that there were some 
quite strange occasions with the readings of some of these verses. I'll tell you just two of them. Both true stories. Once a recipient didn't know exactly what to do other than attempt to hide her horror because her cutout verse was Isaiah 9, verse 20. And it says this, Each will feed on the flesh of his own arm. Another one received a gift, and she happened to be a devout atheist, and she received this cut-out verse in her gift. It was from Acts 28, verse 6, which says, The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a very long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, how about that? Get that in your gift. This woman, as you might imagine, was challenged about... What in the world is this verse in my gift for? And she would often reply, hey, don't look at me. I didn't write it. It's the Bible. So it's good for you. Sometimes even the Bible that's good for us is strange, isn't it? And unless we understand the context, then we have a very hard time making out what does this mean? We have to understand and study what comes before and what comes behind to give us a clue as to what this particular passage means. And Daniel 9 is no exception. It is a famous passage for misunderstanding and strange interpretations. This is a confusing and a cryptic and a complex passage. And we're not going to come anywhere close to making clear all the difficulties this morning. But I do hope that we can lay hold of the central vision that God has for His people in this passage. And the first thing to note about that is to remember that this passage comes as an answer to prayer. Daniel had asked God to bless his people. He confessed his sin. He confessed the sin of all of the people that were in captivity. And he said, God, act now. Assure us of your promises now. As he poured out his heart. Essentially, the last line of Daniel's prayer in verse 19 said, We are your people and this is your city, so do something for us. Keep your promises, keep your covenant that we will be your people and you will be our God. Do something, God. And this whole confusing chapter is an answer to that request. It says, God, please don't forget about us. And God answered by sending the message from Gabriel that says, I haven't forgotten about you and I won't forget about you because I love you. That's the thing to note, first of all, in this passage, is that God answers. God answers the prayers of His people. But if you remember from last time, Daniel 8, he had received a a terrible vision and he was praying from a very dark place as he was emotionally distraught as he poured out his heart in Daniel chapter 9 because the vision had been told him that it was going to get worse for them. Whenever they received the answer to their prayers and went back home, it was actually going to be worse. They would be persecuted. They would be broken down. And so Daniel said, God, have mercy on us. Extend forgiveness to us. Don't forget your covenant. Don't forget your committed love for us. Hear us and do something, God, is what Daniel prayed. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a place where you say, God, where are you? I need you now. There's something happening and I can't make sense of it. And I need you to do something here. Have you ever been there? I have. How sweet must it have been for Daniel to receive his answer that's given to him beginning in verse 20. It says, While I was speaking and praying. 
And then in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer. And in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas, a word for mercy went out, Gabriel told him. It's like Daniel wants us to feel that God was so eager to answer his prayer that he interrupted him. Even before he could get all the words out of his mouth, verse 23. At the beginning of your plea, even before he had finished, God spoke, God heard, and he sent Gabriel, the archangel, to answer Daniel's prayer. And he came personally to deliver that word. As soon as you asked, Gabriel said, the Lord sent me to assure you that not only have you been heard, but also that you are greatly loved. It's almost as if God heard Daniel's worry and his terror over feeling forgotten by God. And in his holy haste, God quickly sent Gabriel to personally appear before Daniel and say, I love you. You are greatly loved, my child. That little word, greatly loved, is used nine times in the Old Testament. And it means something like you're greatly desired or you are an object of of preciousness in my life. The same root word is behind the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. But here, it's used for how God feels about Daniel. How God feels about His child. How God feels about you and me, the people whom He's purchased with His own blood. He desires, He he craves, He has a holy covetousness for you because you belong to Him. Does He love you? Of course He loves you. It's such a deep love that He compares it to coveting. The way we feel about these objects that we set our eyes on in this world and think that will satisfy us but never could, God uses that same sense of desire to explain how He feels about you. The one He sets His affection on. I covet you so much so that, verse 24, yes, I will act. I will finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and bring an everlasting kingdom. Let's not forget that these very things that God lists were the reason that the people were in exile to start with. They had sinned. They had transgressed. They were wicked. And that was the reason that they were imprisoned in Babylon to begin with. And now God says, I not only know those things about you, but I myself am going to do away with those things that I know about you. And what's more, He will bring in everlasting righteousness. A perfection before Him. Perfection in His sight. He says, I know your sin and I love you still and I am going to make you rebellious and sinful people. I'm going to make you perfect and holy in My sight. What an answer to prayer. God, have you forgotten about me? And He not only says, no, I haven't forgotten about you, but My plan is to make you perfect in My sight. Daniel heard that message from an angel. But you and I have seen it acted out in Jesus going to the cross to do away with our sin, to keep the very promises that God made to Daniel right here. Daniel heard it told to him in a message, and we've seen it on the cross as Jesus not only took our sin upon Him to wipe it away and make us clean, but He also imputed or credited to our account His righteousness. So that when the Father looks upon us, 
He looks upon us not only as wiped clean by the blood of Jesus, but He looks upon us as if Jesus' robe of righteousness is wrapped around you. And He sees you as He sees His own Son. What an answer to prayer. So friends, when we are struggling and we pray, Lord, are You there? Do You love me? Because it's so easy to look around in our lives and conclude, maybe He's not here. Or maybe He doesn't love me anymore. The Lord says, no, love you. I have a holy covetousness for you. You are prized. You are desired. You are my crown jewel. But don't just hear it. Look upon the cross and see it worked out. See it demonstrated before your very eyes. That truth is what lies behind the beautiful hymn. And can it be? And can it be that... I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that my God would die for me? You and I are the wicked ones. We very well have had the hammer to drive the nails into Jesus' hands ourselves. And yet He would do that for us. He would not only say the words, I love you, but He would shout it to us in the cross. Could He prove it any more clearly than that? I not only love you, I covet you. I know all about your rebellion and I love you still and you must be with me. You must be with me in perfection forever. I love you so deeply. You have to remember that. When it seems like either the evil on the inside or the evil on the outside is having its way in our lives. We need to remember that kind of love when we're discouraged because of our lack of patience. Or whenever we as parents fail to listen to our children when we're parenting them and, and, and harm them in the ways that we speak harshly to them. I need to remember it when I run out of my own self-assurance and feeling like I can handle whatever problem comes my way. When we're at the bottom and we figure out we can't handle this. It's much too complex for me. We need to remember the Lord saying, I love you and I've proven it to you on the cross. We need to remember it when we are wallowing in our feeling of nothing else can be done for me. I'm too far gone. My problem is much too big for God. We've tried everything and nothing works. Remember the Lord's answer. I love you. Or you fill in the blank. What is your prayer that feels like the Lord isn't answering in the way you ask Him to answer? He does answer because He loves His people with a holy, passionate, and burning love. He answers but He answers in His time. We like instant oatmeal. Some of us, like Pastor Ron, like instant coffee. Most of us don't. (laughs) We all like instant answers from God. But rarely does He answer that way. Rarely does He come and deliver us in our distress in that instantaneous fashion. He comes in His own time. 
The answer that was promised to Daniel and sealed with the blood of Jesus wasn't to come at the end of the 70-year exile, but verse 24 says, after 70 weeks, or more literally, 77s before it works out. It's a really long time. People have tried to work out exactly how long that is, reading the 70 weeks and trying to plot out how many years is that going to be before the temple is reconstructed or or the, the Antichrist comes and whatnot. They look at the 77s, meaning 70 times 7, thinking it's a, a, a chronological 490 years. But historically, many others have read this like the other visions in Daniel. These are symbols that are so often used in the book. As in apocalyptic literature, both the number 7 and the number 10 have deep meaning. 7 is the number for perfection and 10 is the number for completeness. And so what we have here is 70, that's 7 times 10, times 7. That's 7 of perfection times 10 of completeness. And then you multiply by 7 again, that's a, a period of full completeness. Full of the, the fullness of time. It's not giving us a particular number of years. But God is saying at the right time. When the fullness of time has come. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3. In the fullness of time I will send my son. And he will bear your sin. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. Where Peter is told to forgive his brother 70 times 7 remember that passage and the number wasn't meant to say peter you can forgive your brother if he sins against you 490 times forgive him but if he does it a 491st time you let the hammer drop of course that's not what that means of course not Rather, the Lord is giving to Peter a a scale of forgiveness that's the long-term view. It's, It's a long grace in the same direction. He's not tying it to a particular number. He's saying a grace that is magnificent, a forgiveness that goes beyond what you could have in your wildest imagination. And here the Lord answers Daniel's prayer by saying something similar. I'm going to restore my people and I'm going to forever put away sin But I'm going to do it in my time, in the fullness of time. When when I decide it's the right time, I'm going to act. And friends, we need to know that because so often God's work takes way longer than we might expect it to. His work among His people, His work in our lives as individuals, His work to build us together as a body so often takes a really long time. His work of making us holy, of sanctifying us on the inside, it takes a long time, longer than we might expect. God's program is not an instant oatmeal holiness. God's program is not an instantaneous relief. He doesn't plan to transform us as a people into His image by using the microwave. It takes a while. He has a slow process, but we can hang on to the truth that He promises to do His work, but He does it in His time frame. You and I often come to the Lord with a request. Change my spouse's heart by next Tuesday. Sometimes we even give Him less time. Do it by Monday. 24 hours, Lord, get it done. When He thinks something better is in order. Maybe that's the wrong prayer to start with. Maybe he wants to change us instead of changing our spouse. And maybe he thinks it best to take a little more time than we're giving him on our timetable. 
And if you're anything like me, sometimes when he doesn't operate on my timetable, I'm either led toward despair or I become more demanding with the people around me. Saying, look, I dealt with this sin. I put it away. What is taking you so long to get around to it? But when we remember the Lord's long-term project, the long work of grace of the Lord Jesus within us, then we may learn to be gracious toward one another, toward the other people who are changing as slowly as we are changing. He gives us grace to be patient. We have to remember that That work of transformation and that work of repentance has to be a daily thing. And so often it's a it's a grind of daily self-denial. And we have to extend that same patience and that same grace to others who are grinding through self-denial and daily repentance. Because none of us ever outgrow our need for mercy, our need for grace. Because the Lord's work in us as individuals and as a body isn't going to be finished until we see Him face to face. It's a lifelong work. It's a multi-generational work of us as His body, as His people. He works, but He works in His own time. Perhaps God's timing with your prayers has less to do with a change in your own life as an individual and more to do with a change in circumstances. It feels like God's taken forever to get around to changing your circumstances. Yes, God answers our prayers, but... He often does it in ways or in a time that doesn't suit us. Sometimes He answers our prayers by saying no. He knows something that we don't about what is truly good or what is truly best for you and me. And His answer is no, because that's not best for you. Or He may answer our prayers by saying not yet. He may yet have work to do inside of us. There is a heart-level work, an inside job that He must do before it would be good for us to receive the thing we're asking for. Sometimes He needs to do the work inside of us to prepare us for the yes. And it takes a while. But know this. God's answers to our prayers always come through a heart of love. It always comes from the the heart of blessing, that that holy coveting of you, His child. Just sometimes His timetable is a little different from ours. But everything that comes into your life is sifted through His loving, fatherly fingers. Never doubt it. He has a fierce and a passionate love for you, His child. God answers our prayers. And He answers them in His time. And His purposes will completely triumph in the end. It's His purpose, His goal, His ministry, His initiatives that will completely triumph in the end. And that's what the remaining verses of Daniel 9 tell us. But if you ask four theologians how you're supposed to understand verses 25 to 27, you're probably going to get seven different answers. This is a confusing passage. In fact, none of the nine commentaries I consulted about these verses exactly agreed with one another. None of them. And all of them, good, solid folks who love the Lord, who love the Scriptures, all of them coming from more or less a Reformed perspective on how to read the Scriptures, and none of them agreed with each other. So how are we supposed to make sense of it? The call for you and for me is a great humility. A humility as we read this 
so that we make sure that we're putting the emphasis on the right syllable, if you know what I mean. That we keep the main thing, the main thing, and not let the confusing detail obscure the overall importance to us as God's people. If you want to discuss the intricacies of how to understand these these, uh, prophecies, I'd be happy to do that with you later. But for this morning... I'd like to give you the bottom line of how I think we're to understand and apply this passage. Again, remember, this this whole answer in prophecy is an answer to Daniel's prayer. A prayer that says, God, will you act? God, will you forgive? God, will you keep your promises to save and be gracious to your people? And these words are God's answer to that prayer. It comes in 70 weeks of Verse 24 says, and it's broken into three distinct parts. The first seven, and then the middle 62, and then the last seven. And if you attempt to add up these specific weeks as years, as some do, the numbers just don't add up. They don't correspond to any historical events that we know about. It seems to be, rather, once again, that this is vision language. This is symbolic language to speak to relative periods of time, not numbers of days or numbers of hours. This first seven is a relatively short period of time. And that's the degree, the decree that comes from God's throne in verse 25 that says Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. You will return home, Daniel. You will have a new city of Jerusalem. I will act and I will restore my people. But then the next 62 weeks take on an entirely different character. We read at the end of verse 25 that it will be a troubled time. The rebuilding of God's people is going to take a long period of time. The rebuilding of the temple is going to take a long time. And the building of you and I as the temple today, the dwelling place of God, takes a very long time. And the peak is the verse 26, cutting off of the anointed one. Which means the Lord Jesus, the anointed Messiah, would be cut off and given His life for us upon the cross. It's language that is borrowed from Isaiah 53, verse 8, where Isaiah said, the suffering Messiah would be cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of My people, He was stricken. And then after the Messiah, the one promised to come was His life was taken, Gabriel says, comes the 70th week, where the first half the covenant's reaffirmed, and then there will be no more worship in Jerusalem. Some people see this as positive. If the Lamb of God, the eternal sacrifice, has already been made, there is no more need to worship in the temple. It's a celebration. Others see it as a negative prophecy. Because every other time the same words are used, it refers to an enemy of God stopping worship. In Jerusalem. How should we understand it? Frankly, I don't know. I don't know which one of them, which way to understand it is right. But this is something that we can assert with absolute confidence. This passage tells us that God's grace will certainly triumph. And it is going to come in the midst of distressing times for God's people. His grace and His power and His mercy is going to triumph over all evil. And yet it comes in the midst of distress and trial and persecution and pain. Did you notice that of the 70 weeks that are mentioned here, 69 of them are troubled times. 69 of them are hard. 
And yet, even amidst the difficulties that God's people experience, the Lord still does His work. He's still rebuilding His people. He's still conforming us to the image of Christ. He's still establishing His kingdom in this world. He's doing His work. He came to take on flesh. He bore our sin on the cross. He was raised from the dead and now sits on the throne in heaven. He's continuing His work. Even in a difficult world. Even in a place filled with trouble and distress and persecution. And yet the end is certain. Verse 25 says, God's decree of judgment will be poured out on the desolator. The final enemy of God's people will come to an end. The one who opposes Him, the one who opposes us, this world will finally be cleansed of all of His evil and all of His sinful actions, and yet God will do it in His time. And the lesson for us is a faithful, long obedience in the same direction. That's our call. To borrow from Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. So often for us, we think if... God rules over history. And since Jesus has been crowned as king and he has now ascended and sits on the throne and controls everything that happens in history, then surely there should be a steady growth of onward and upward, right? If we were to plot out a graph of growth on one axis and time on the other, it should be a straight line. Continually growing more and more and more, day by day by day, more of Jesus, more of his kingdom, more of his growth in my life. That's not the way it works, is it? We know that's not true in our own experience and that's not what Gabriel is telling us here. That graph of our growth and change in the Christian life looks a whole lot more like this. Among the people of God, it looks like this in our own personal lives. Two steps forward, three steps back. Four steps forward, five steps back. Three steps forward, on and on and on. We struggle being grown in a difficult time. But the promise is this. He will triumph in this world and He will triumph in us. Because the Lord Jesus entered into this world. He took on flesh to live as one of us that He might bring to an end our sin and our transgression, but also as He ascended the throne that His new life could break into history. His new life of renewal could come and make all things new. Jesus is not only interested in in claiming your soul, He has promised to make all things new. And it's guaranteed by His own blood. And one day the trumpet will sound. And the day of Jesus' complete victory over every sin is going to be announced. His victory over disease and decay and betrayal and persecution and injustice and racism and every bit of evil will be finally wiped away. The evil inside of us and the evil outside of us. But today, we keep our eyes on Him and know that that day is coming. And today we get to work. We get to work pursuing the things that He loves. We get to work pursuing the kingdom that He's building. Giving our lives, giving our all, working toward that day when everything will be made new. A long obedience in the same direction. Many of you here today are mothers. And if anybody knows about long obedience in the same direction, it's mothers. 
anyone knows how difficult it is to continue giving your heart and having no way to predict the outcome, it's mothers. It's difficult being a mother. Sometimes it is so filled with joy and we are thankful for our mothers. We're thankful for your committed love to your children. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you just want to give up. It's a long obedience in the same direction because of the love that is within you. Same with the Lord. Some of you here on Mother's Day have a wounded and sick heart because you've lost. As a mother, you've lost children. Or as a child, you've lost your mother. And today's a painful day. Today's a hard day. Remember this promise. The promise of the ascension. That the Lord is coming and one day all of that brokenness and sin and disease is going to be put away. Today's the day to hang on to that promise. Others of you here, women, are distressed because you desperately want to be a mother, but you can't. Either because God has not yet given you a husband, or because your body is not able to produce children. And it's a wound. It's a heart sickness when we come and celebrate on Mother's Day. Hang on to this promise. Hang on to this promise of the ascension that Jesus is coming and in His tenderness, one day when He returns, He will heal every single wound. Even those hard and wounded and broken places in your own hearts. It's long obedience in the same direction. And yet we lay hold of His promises and His truths. And I promise you that on the day when He returns, the wait won't seem to have been too long. The day when you see Him face to face, that winding road of growth isn't going to seem like it was too much. The day when He comes, the trials that you've experienced won't feel like they were too deep. But instead, when you see your Savior face to face, it will be a time of deep satisfying of the living waters nourishing your soul and giving you everything you've ever wanted in Him. But until that day, keep your eyes on Him. Keep your eyes on Him as you hope and as you pray And He won't disappoint. Everyone else will disappoint. But Jesus will not. Our call is a long obedience in the same direction. Because God answers. He answers our prayers, but He does it in His time. And He will do it in perfect completion to bring about His perfect will. And you can bank on it. Because He's guaranteed that promise with the blood of His Son. You are precious to Him. And the renewal of this world and the healing of all of our wounds is a precious thing to our Savior. Lay hold of Him and let Him give you hope. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that You haven't left us alone. We thank You that You gave Daniel such an answer to his prayer that many of us in this room have said over and over and over again, where are You, God? And will You do anything to help me? We thank You, Lord, that You have assured us that You will. 
that You have promised to answer our prayers in Your time and in Your best way. So we ask, Father, that You would give us the faith to wait and to trust that You know what is best even when it takes way longer than we think it should. We pray, Jesus, that You would draw near to any in our congregation who have hearts that are wounded or are suffering in pain today. We pray that You would enable us to lay hold of Your promises. Lay hold of the promise that one day all that is wrong will be made right. And until that day, would You give us strength to spend our lives for what You care about. Your kingdom, Your love, Your mercy given to a world that is sore and broken. We pray that You would do it in us as a church. Do it in us as individuals so that our families, our friends, our workplaces, our city, our nation, and this world would be transformed by Your love. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.